The scripture for today's sermon is Jude 1, 5 through 16. The word of God speaks to us. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are the hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. This is the word of God to us. Amen. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Woo! That's a doozy. My goodness. Wowzers. Uh, yeah, this is not a traditional Mother's Day text, so I'm glad you're here. If, if we haven't met yet, my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors. And last week, we started a four-week journey through the, through the book of Jude. It's a, it's a really powerful book. It's a really timely book. And this text is obviously really tricky. It's really weighty. And yet, it's really powerful. And so I want to take a minute and pray for you guys. And I want to ask you to pray for me, right? As hard as that was to hear that, I have to try to explain that and apply that to our hearts. So we need the Holy Spirit. So let's pray. Hey, Father, I'm so thankful for the gift of motherhood. And uh, as we're going to see today, especially in a moment where love has been so reduced and so stripped, motherhood is this powerful, amazing example of love with substance, love with cost, love with sacrifice, love rooted in covenant that's reflective of your love. So, Lord, I pray today that you would give us grace to be present with you, to encounter you in your word, to be shaped, to be formed, to be protected. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and teach us and be with us and give us tender hearts, Lord, because we all as human beings are so prone to arrogance. We're so prone 
to litigating against the living God. And I just pray today that you would give us the clarity to sit, to listen. So we invite you, come, have your way. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Hey, so my wife and I have this interesting conflict of vacations where like I love the mountains, but I really love the ocean and she's more of a mountain girl. And for many years, we just went to the mountains and for the last few years, we've been going to the ocean. And I think the solution at some point is just going to the Pacific Northwest, but we haven't done that yet. And I was thinking back this morning on one of the early trips that we took right after we got married to Colorado. And uh, this was a season in my life where I kind of had like, not really a commitment, but sort of a hope to climb all 54 of Colorado's 14,000 foot peaks. Uh, I think I got to 13 before I abandoned that dream. And this one day I talked my wife into climbing a 14er with me and we wanted to get off of the summit above treeline before the afternoon thunderstorms roll in. And so we got on the trailhead at like 4.30 in the morning and we're walking in the middle of the dark through these paths. And my wife's really adventurous. She's always game for doing crazy things, but she has a really tentative relationship with bears. She thinks that bears are adorable from a distance and doesn't want to meet a bear in the wild. And she was asking me questions out of nervousness about bear attacks in Colorado. And I'm no biologist, but I did my best. And I said, hey, like, here's what you need to know. This will give you great peace to walk through the dark in the woods. There are no grizzly bears in Colorado. They've all been killed off, which is sad, but true. And you don't really have to worry about black bears for the most part, unless you get between a mama and her cub. All right, no lie, five minutes go by. <laughs> We're walking in the dark and we hear this scratching sound and we look over and like five feet away from us at eye level is a brand new baby bear cub right there. And to the other side of us, five feet away, <laughs> is mama bear in the bushes making very angry sounds. So I grabbed my wife's hand and we slowly backed up, got back on the trail, and we decided to go eat pizza instead of climb a mountain that day. <laughs> now listen, I, I tell you that story because that metaphor of ferocity and love and protection that's been used throughout all human cultures, throughout literature and poetry of a mama bear in her cub is actually really timely for our text. Because this is a really strange text for any Sunday, and it's a particularly strange text for Mother's Day. It contains dire warnings. It has a reference to Jesus killing an entire generation of people in the wilderness. It quotes from two different ancient Jewish books of Apocrypha, not in the canon of Scripture, but books that Jude wants to reference by way of illustration. The book of First Enoch. You probably haven't read it. I've heard it's a banger and the testimony of Moses. It has a reference to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It has a reference most likely to Genesis chapter 6, where fallen angels lusted for human women and somehow created offspring through sexual sin. It has a reference to all kinds of unsettling and frankly shocking things. And what I want to say in the midst of this is that behind all of this, behind the things that feel ancient and obscure, behind the things that feel offensive, behind the things that feel shocking and jolting, 
in every word of the book of Jude, even this text that we just read, in every syllable and every sentence, what we have underneath it and in it is actually the love of God. What we have in this text is the reminder that real love fights evil. That real love moves even into the shadows, into the place of death and danger to try to pursue the beloved. That real love is willing to offend in order to save. And that real love is even willing to wound in order to heal. And in our moment, what's happened to our view of love is in sharp contrast to what we read from the heart of God the Father by way of these warnings. See, we've made love a vibe. We've made love a feeling. We've made love a sentiment that rises and falls based on just what's happening emotionally in our fickle chest. And what we have in these words through these dire warnings, through these exhortations, through these examples is a reminder that the Father's love is powerful love. It's not sentimental love. It's not Hallmark card love. The love of the Father was made manifest in his son Jesus, who lost everything and bore the judgment that we deserve so that we could be reconciled to God. The love of the Father, listen to me, the love of the Father is not the self-indulgent love of a granddad who breaks all the parents' rules, and I love grandparents, but the love of the Father is the love that chastens, that disciplines, that scourges every son he receives. The love of the Father is good love, and it's deep love, and it's powerful love, but it's not love that always feels good. And in these words today, what we have is a reminder that the love of God, which is being reflected on every page of this difficult little book, is love that pursues and loves that, love that even wars for us in our propensity to run from God. A friend of mine recently sent me a screenshot of a book that he's reading by a guy named Gene Edwards. He wrote one of my favorite books called The Tale of Three Kings. And the book that he took a screenshot of is called The Prisoner in the Third Cell. It's about John, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptizer, being imprisoned and eventually murdered. And he has all of these hopes for Jesus, the Messiah, and all these questions for Jesus, the Messiah. And he sends his disciples from prison to ask Jesus, are you really the one that we've been waiting for? Which is fascinating and ironic because John already said that he is the one that we're waiting for. But now Jesus, the Messiah, John's own cousin, isn't coming through for John to get him out of jail. And John's like, hey, are you the one or should we keep waiting? And Jesus, in essence, says, hey, John, I'm not getting you out of prison for this one. Blessed is he that doesn't stumble over me. And Gene Edwards describes the question that that raises in our hearts as we walk with Jesus in that book. Here's what he says. The question before the house is this. Will you follow a God you do not understand? Will you follow a God who does not live up to your expectations? Because the reality is there are moments where the journey of faith feels like the dark night of the soul. There's times where our walk with Jesus is devoid of all of the consolations of religion. There's times where our journey with Jesus results in profound loss. There's times where the prayers 
that we're sending before the throne of God are responded to with a no or a not yet or most troubling a silence that leaves us with no experience of his presence tangibly in our bodies, but just the hopeful longing that he's going to keep his promises to us. And that question, will you follow a God you don't understand, will you follow a God that doesn't live up to your expectations, is not only the question in the dark moments of our journey of discipleship, it's also the questions that arise in our heart when we find God baffling, when we find his love too strong, when we find his ways too high above our ways, when we find his resistance to evil too strident or his boundaries incomprehensible or his nose that he gives us to be the very opposite of what we want in our life. Will you follow a God you don't understand? Will you trust that the love of God made manifest in the cross is so clear and so deep and so powerful that you can rest on his arms even when you find him offensive or difficult or hard? And I want to remind you where we started last week because it's so important. I want to remind you of this this week, next week, Kenser's going to remind you the fourth week that this book is rooted and grounded in the heart of your father. Jude writes in verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those that are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This is a book written to those that God loved before they loved God. That God is pursuing, that God is chasing down and fighting for that are beloved in God and that are kept in Jesus Christ for God, that he's holding on to, that he's protecting, that he's shaping, that he's forming. And the heart of this book is not a stingy addition of a little bit of mercy, peace, and love. The heart of your father for you is the heart of prodigality or abundance. It's a heart that doesn't just create a couple of different kinds of flowers in the world, but that fills the world with colors. God doesn't want to add a little bit of mercy, peace, and love into your life. He wants to multiply it. He wants there to be an exponential explosion of mercy, peace, and love. And so with that in mind, today what we have to do is go to the hardest part of the book of Jude. Next week, we're going to pick up, and Jude answers a lot of questions. He gives us handles pastorally for how we're to contend for the faith once for all delivered. But today, he gives us warnings, and he does so in two ways. The first thing we're going to look at is the anatomy of apostasy. Apostasy describes one who once claimed to follow Jesus departing from the belief, obedience, and love of the faith. That was what was happening in Jude's day in the church. That's what's happening in our day in the church, and we need to walk through this text together. And then secondly, we want to look at the certainty of judgment that God promises that he resists evil because he loves that which is good. And then after those two, those two points, the anatomy of apostasy and the certainty of judgment, we will pray for you and send you to brunch. So here we go. I want you to follow with me. Look what happens in verse eight. I'm gonna read it and then we're gonna unpack it. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the holy, the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, 
was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Okay, there's a lot happening here, and I can't give you every detail, and this is going to raise questions that I'm more than happy to engage with you over the next couple of months. But let me take you through the logical flow of what he's saying. Here's the anatomy of falling away from Jesus. And the anatomy of falling away from Jesus is given to us to warn us, to protect us, to help us be sober and alert. He starts by saying, number one, their faith is subjective. Their faith is subjective. Verse 8, in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams. Here's what he's saying in the beginning of this amazing little book. He talks about the faith once for all delivered. And last week, we talked about the content of the faith, that there is doctrinal content, the truth of who God is and who we are and what salvation means and what people are for and where the world's heading. There are true beliefs that are, true beliefs that are part of the faith. It also contains the moral substance of the faith, obedience. That to say you love Jesus is to certainly fail and certainly need grace throughout the entirety of your life, but it's to absolutely fight against sin and to say yes to Jesus and to keep following him. And thirdly, there is the relational substance of the faith, which is love. To know the love of God in Jesus and to love one another. And what Judas is telling us here is that there's certain people in the ancient church who have abandoned the faith once for all delivered in favor of subjective revelations that they claim to have received from God. So their dreams, their wish dream of the faith has been elevated above the substance of the faith. And now all of a sudden they are crafting a faith that looks nothing like the faith of Jesus and the apostles. It's devoid of what the faith actually is about. Now listen, what's happening here, this subjective faith is a little bit different than what we're experiencing in our cultural moment. When people have subjective faith today, rarely is it as mystical as the, these people. They were claiming personal revelations and dreams from God that contradicted the teachings of Jesus. But here's how this fleshes out today. Here's the temptation for you and me. We too are tempted to have subjective faith when we use words like, well, for me, this is what it means. Or I'm just going to follow my heart, which is the mantra of every Disney princess and the entirety of our culture now. Or this is my truth and you have your truth. And what starts to happen is instead of receiving the substance of the faith, which is external to us, which has the ability to correct us and limit us and create truth claims and boundaries and to actually hold us to account with the life of God, what starts to happen is, and this has happened in our church like crazy for people the last four years, we start to redact and mark through and cut out everything about God and everything about scripture that we find distasteful or challenging, or frustrating. It's subjective. And I need you to hear me say this. The problem with subjective faith is that it crafts a Jesus that never offends, that never contradicts us, and that never corrects us. 
And as wonderful as that might sound, as much as that might feel like chicken soup for your soul for a little while, a Jesus that you and me invent, a designer Jesus created in our own image, also never bled for you. A Jesus of your imagination didn't die for you. A Jesus of your imagination can't save you, doesn't intercede for you at the right hand of the Father, and will never return because a Jesus that you made up is just that, an imaginary Jesus. In a subjective faith, man, it, it can't rescue you. It can't protect you because it's not real. He then goes on and says that there's a logical flow. When our faith becomes subjective, the next step that we take is to then defile the flesh. Look at verse 8. In like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defiled the flesh. Here's the logical flow. He's saying a subjective faith is a faith that's defined by and directed by you and me ourselves. It contains nothing external to us that can restrain us or correct us or tell us no. And the logical result is that we then slide into increasingly licentious, carnal, and base behavior. When you have a designer faith and a Jesus that can never tell you no, you're certainly going to start to give yourself permission to follow the impulses of your flesh, the part of you that's fallen and sinful, in ways that contradict the teachings of Jesus. Last week, Jude mentioned that these false teachers in the church pervert the grace of God. And that's exactly what's happened. Their subjective faith has led to them doing whatever they want to do and following their hearts and their flesh down roads that don't look like the way of Jesus. We mentioned last week that grace doesn't eliminate the line between good and evil. It clarifies it. Grace is the power to fight sin, not to make a treaty with it. Grace is not the obliteration of God's good order. It's the affirmation and fulfillment of God's good order. And grace is not an excuse to say the same. It's the power of God. It's the presence of God to help us, though we fail all the time, to continue to fail forward as we fall and he lifts us back up and we turn back to Jesus. This leads to the third thing. Their faith is subjective. They defile the flesh. And that leads to then a rejection of all external authority. Look what verse 8, one more time. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Here's what he's saying. These people went through a logical progression where their faith became subjective. They then gave license to their flesh to do the things that God says are not helpful but destructive for them. And as a result, the only authority that they're willing to surrender to is the authority of self. So in essence, Jesus has no authority. His word has no authority. The leaders in the local church have no authority. Their friends have no authority. Their parents have no authority. They have become a law to themselves. And then he gives us an example from Jewish tradition, a little book called The Testimony of Moses. And this is a powerful example of a contrast between the false teachers and the way of Jesus. Look at verse 9. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses... He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. Here's what he's saying. Um, There's only one archangel mentioned in in the entire Bible, and it's Michael, meaning Michael is this powerful created being, not equal with God. He's a created being, 
But he is so mighty, so glorious, and so powerful that if you saw the angel Mark, the archangel Michael, you would be tempted to worship him and you would fall down in terror. He's powerful. And yet, in all of that power and all that strength and glory that God gave this created being, he's so surrendered to God and so unwilling to be presumptuous and arrogant that instead of him taking upon himself to rebuke the devil, he stands under the authority of God and says, the Lord rebuke you. This is really, really powerful. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that if we start to believe our own hype, if we start to get puffed up with arrogance and pride, if we start to move out from under the authority of Jesus, his word, our church community, our brothers, our sisters, our spiritual family, we get arrogant and we lose the humility, teachability, and hunger to grow that's essential for the long road of obedience in following Jesus. And what happens to us, instead of finding a richer life, more fulfillment, and more joy, they get reduced. Look at verse 10. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Track with me on this. Here's these people that are claiming special revelation that contradicts what God's taught clearly. They're doing whatever they want to do with their lives, even when it includes things that Jesus says are hurtful for them and others. And in the midst of that arrogance, instead of becoming more free and more powerful and more glorious, what Jude is saying is that they've reduced themselves and they're now more like animals. They're following their base desires. They've become more carnal. They've become debased. And this is exactly what's happening in our moment. This is the danger that stands before us. He then gives examples from history. We don't have time to get into all of them. He mentions Cain as an example of arrogance and violence. He mentions Balaam as an example of greed and defilement of the flesh. And he mentions Korah as an example of rebellion. And then he moves into poetry. And this is where I want to pause and talk about it. Because poetry is the language of the soul. And what Jude wants to do for us is not just give us a bunch of intellectual things to sort of wrestle with the danger of apostasy. He wants your gut to learn to wrestle with apostasy. He wants when you're feeling pulled away from Jesus and seduced away from the faith and led astray, he wants you to have metaphors that help give your heart language so that when that starts to happen in your life, you'll know that you're in grave danger and you'll run to Jesus. Look at verse 12. These are hidden reefs in your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of outer darkness has been reserved forever. Here's what he says. These false teachers that are leading people into apostasy are hidden reefs at your love feasts. What does that mean? Well, the early church used to get together to celebrate the Lord's Supper over a meal. And they would receive food and drink and they would pray and worship and enjoy each other and pray for each other. And they would break the bread and drink the cup. And what Jude's saying is these false teachers are like dangerous reefs that if a sailor gets too close to you, will tear the hole out of the ship and cause everybody on board to drown. 
And he's saying they're so dangerous because you can't see them until it's too late. You don't know the reefs there unless you have a chart to know that it's under the water. He then says that they're like shepherds feeding themselves. This is one of the most consistent prophetic rebukes in the Old Testament to the leaders of Israel. God keeps saying, Shepherds are supposed to care for the people. They're supposed to lay down their lives for the people and love the people, but you guys devour the people. You feed yourselves. It's a picture of greed, that these false teachers tell you what they, what they think you want to hear, but they're not doing so because they love you and care about you. They're doing so, as he's going to say later, for shameful gain. That's why they're showing favoritism. They're like waterless clouds, Imagine being a farmer and your entire livelihood and the health of your family is dependent upon your crops being watered and clouds blow in and you have hope rising your chest and you're like, all right, awesome, this is gonna happen. And then the clouds that look like they're about to rain, they just dissipate and blow away. He's saying that these false teachers can't actually give you life. They can't nurture anything. They can't grow anything. They're empty. They're like fruitless trees. They don't bear fruit. They're like wild waves or rogue waves that can capsize boats that also bring up all the dirt and filth from the bottom of the ocean and they cast it up onto the seashore. They're wandering stars. This is a really obscure ancient reference. Probably what he's referring to is what happens sometimes when people would try to navigate by planets instead of fixed stars and they would get led astray. He's saying if you follow their teachings and their lives, you're you're going to get lost you're gonna lose your way. Now I want you to just pause here for a second because the heart of your Father in heaven for you is so powerful and full of goodness. And the road of discipleship on this side of heaven is really narrow and it's really dangerous. And on each side of the road are traps and snares and enemies of God that wanna devour you. And what he's saying with these warnings is like, if you are ignorant of this, if you just go through the motions, if you're not sober, if you're not alert, you're going to end up being like a tourist in the middle of a war zone. You're not going to make it. He's warning you and me that just drifting along in our Christian journey is going to get you off course. And that apostasy is real and it's deadly and the stakes are really high. So he's saying, pay attention. Pay attention to yourself. Pay attention as you do life with your brothers and sisters. Fight for each other. Be aware. And why should we be aware? Why is this so serious? It's so serious, number two, because of the certainty of judgment. Look at verse five. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. He uses three, te- three Old Testament examples of judgment. Temporal judgment to remind us of eternal judgment. He's saying Jesus is the one that did the work of the Exodus. He rescued people out of slavery. He brought them into the wilderness. Spies went in to look at the land. They came back. They brought a bad report except for two. And the people of Israel didn't believe God. And in their unbelief and hardness of heart, God, the son, Jesus, 
declared that they would die in the wilderness. The reference to angels might refer to the fall of angels. It might also, in fact, it likely refers to Genesis chapter 6, a really bizarre thing that happened in the Old Testament where angels committed indecent acts and sinned against God and were then judged and Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of violence and sexual sin and hardness of heart before God. In the midst of those examples, here's what Jude's saying. He's saying that God who is love, God who is the pursuer, God who is the father, is so opposed to the forces that bring decreation, that bring death, that bring destruction, that lead us to devour each other, to use each other, to objectify each other, to break that which we've built, to hurt those that we love. Here's what he's saying. He's patient and he's slow to anger, but he is not a man and he will not be mocked. He's going to oppose these things. He will fight these things. And sometimes his judgment is temporal, but ultimately there is such a thing as the great day of the Lord. And Jude is warning the church of Jesus Christ, and he's warning you and me today, all these years later, that this is serious. This is not a hobby. This is not a game. This is not a joke. And what is at stake is eternal life. And in the end of this sermon today, what I want to say is that there's a gift being offered to us. It's not the gift of distance from God. The gift that's being offered to us in these warnings and examples is the gift of holy fear. It's the gift of looking at God and seeing his beauty and his goodness, that there's no sin in him, and yet he's described as love. And in the midst of all of that glory, his desire is to know you and to be known by you, but he's not playing games. It's a gift of like realizing that any one of us left to ourselves will stray away from belief, obedience, and love, the substance of the faith. It's the gift of being reminded that we need to stay close to Jesus. We need to keep ourselves in the love of God. It's the gift of being reminded that even though Moses was described as the friend of God, when he showed up, when God showed up on the burning, in the burning bush, the holiness of God was present and God told Moses, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. As we said last week, Jesus is good, he's amazing, but he's not just our pal and he's not our life coach and he's not our boyfriend. He's our king. It's the gift, it's the gift of seeing ourselves rightly and knowing that we need God's help and we need each other and we need to engage in a fight with our sin and we need to open God's word and ask him to form us and shape us. So my prayer is that you would receive that gift. My prayer is that you would see the glory of God, the holiness of God, and the kindness, the tenderness of God, not as a paradox to resolve or as a problem or as contradictory, but as a complementary reality that God is tender and God is holy. And he's made a way for us in Jesus to be with him. So keep yourselves in the love of God. I want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gift of holy fear. 
God, may we fear missing your will more than we fear anything else. Rejection, difficulty, suffering. May we be those kept by you and those that keep ourselves in your love. And I pray today, wherever we feel the pull towards subjective faith, towards defiling the flesh, towards rejection of your authority, that you would bring us back to sobriety. As we come to this table and eat, we ask for the grace that we need to be kept for the great day. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, let's stand together. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we'd ask you to not eat this meal. And that's because this is a really powerful faith meal. And without faith in Jesus, it won't help you. And it could actually be harmful to you. And if you're not a Christian, we, we love that you're here. We want you to be here. And we don't believe that we can make you believe. And if we could make you believe, we wouldn't do that even if we could. We believe that you need an encounter with God. And we want you to have all the time that you're willing to take in our church to ask questions about the faith and to explore the claims of Jesus. And if you're with us for the next 15 years, not a Christian, just here, being in community, and then you decide that you don't believe in Jesus and you don't want to follow his way, guess what? We still want to be friends with you. So as we ask you to not eat this meal, we'd ask you to reflect, to think, to pray. We'll have some reflections on the screen. And if you're a Christian, we invite you to come to this meal. Come in holy reverence. Come in repentance. Come to receive fresh grace to keep you in the love of God. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it. So this is my body, which is for you. Take and eat. In the same way, he took the cup. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink. Brothers and sisters, we need a savior. We need grace. We need the love of God. Come and receive fresh help today. When you're ready, come.
if you are still partaking in communion, please stay in that moment. Uh, for the rest of us, would you please stand with me?